Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the 137th edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And for those of you watching for the first time or listening to the first time, uh, there's uh, two elderly guys uh, who chat every week, and we generally have a guest. And if you're watching on the video, uh, you'll know exactly who the elderly guys are. So we've got a guest with us today, Dan Worsley. Hello, Dan. Good morning. Good morning. Now, Dan's been a guest with us before. Uh, and uh, Dan, do you want to just explain, you know, what you're about, what you do, and perhaps why you're on here? Because we're just heading into World Book Day, and uh, this might be of help to to schools who can't get an author into their schools during that uh, period of time. Fingers crossed, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll, go, I'll give you a potted history then of, of where it started. Um, so I was a primary school teacher for uh, 15 years uh, in a, a large three-form entry school in Blackpool, um, taught across Key Stage 2 and into Key Stage 1, um, and then decided after 15 years working with thousands of fantastic Blackpool children to, um, to pursue my other dream. Teaching was always my passion, um, but I loved writing. So for the last 10 years, I've been uh, writing children's books, uh, working with children in schools, libraries, public uh, areas all across the country. Um, and, and that now is how I end up being, you know, called about six or seven months in advance for World Book Day bookings. Um, yeah, wow. <laughs> World Book Day should be every day. Every World day. Book Day is marvellous, but every day should be a World Book Day for sure. Yeah, great. Now, actually, uh, I think is it six children's books you're up to now? Yeah, so peeping over my shoulder, uh, we've got Eric Appleby. So Eric is the star of, uh, he's he's got uh, three books that start off with Zero to Hero. So Zero to Hero tells the story of a lonely little boy uh, who doesn't believe in himself, really struggles with life, uh, wants to be an action hero. But he knows that really action heroes only exist in films. Until one day, a super villain called Ivana de Cash turns up at Eric's school kidnaps all the children apart from him of course uh, and he have to he has to save the day so that's where eric's story started um, and then through we went to uh, danger zone um, his dad goes missing has to save his father's life and then of course every action hero needs his trilogy complete him and so world saver finished the trilogy off so i'm really lucky to work with an amazing illustrator called martin spore who, uh, who when i lived in blackpool uh, lived across the road from me Really? So um, oh. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I lived in a little uh, little village near at Pulton the Fylde, uh, and and illustrate on one side of the street and author on the other. So we met by chance. And... So I'm, I'm interested, though. I mean, because those are very dynamic sort of uh, pictures, aren't they? That I mean, in some respects, that's that's the thing that draws a reader into your book, isn't it? You know, I mean, I, I think so. Is that the thing that gets you? To, I mean, are you conscious when you write the first paragraph that you've really got perhaps a page? or a page and a half to break through to the reader? And, and how does that affect how you read, how you write it? I think it, I, I try to hit the ground running. Obviously, you've got to set the scene and, and set up the, the premises at the start. But I do like to hit the ground running. Um, and, and I had a feeling you're probably going to ask me to read something this morning. So I was leafing through looking for extracts. <laughs> we will. Um, so late, later on, maybe I've got an extract for you that does, does show that how to launch straight into a piece of writing that does hook the reader and makes them want to keep reading. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Would well, you want to do it now, Dan? Because it's I don't sure. Have you got? Okay. It? Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Let's so as well as that. as well as writing the Eric stories, uh, I write Impossible Tales. Oh. So this book is coming up for ten years old now. Uh, Impossible Tales are crazy, weird, wacky short stories, uh, and then we have uh, 
more impossible tales with the impossible child on the front. So the impossible child proves great fun when I go to events and we can all pull impossible faces and the teachers centre, they tend to sneak out the way when we're doing pictures for social media and so they don't get captured. Um, and then when lockdown happened and, and I couldn't visit schools for a, quite a serious amount of time, we created even more impossible tales with the impossible girl on the front. So that's the collection of six. So if I just give you a taster, so impossible yeah, tales... Some impossible tales are weird, some are wacky, uh, some will make you gasp, some will make you laugh. Um, this one was written, um, I would say, probably seven years ago, probably. Um, and I collaborated with Blackpool Libraries when I lived in Blackpool uh, and to create a seaside-themed story. So this is about a creature, uh, a sea creature, and it's called Fear of the Unknown. And it starts with a raging storm. Lightning illuminated the pitch black night sky. Deafening thunder noisily rumbled and crashed. Down below, the sea was a boiling cauldron. The vicious waves raged, battering a helpless boat and causing the vessel to pitch and tip. The captain sent out desperate calls while the rest of the crew frantically battled to save the stricken boat. One way or another, the merciless sea was going to devour its prey. It was simply a matter of time before the boat was dragged down to a watery graveyard. Now, out on deck, there was a small wooden crate which was chained at the rear of the boat. The boat tipped. The crate broke free from its shackles. It began to slide sideways before colliding with the metal guardrail. The crate splintered, leaving a long crack down one side. From the darkness within the crate, a high-pitched shriek emerged before a glowing red eye stared out through the splintered wood. It took in the stormy chaos. The captive within the crate was desperate to escape and they always say leave it on a good bit so we'll leave it on that bit now. <laughs> so that that story started live thinking of a setting so the seaside was the setting and then you have the question what lies beneath what what's beneath those waves that we do not know about and and there the creature came to life so it's funny because yeah. I, I couldn't re I, I was trying to think about that as a victorian setting I wasn't you know because you don't explain you know whether that's a modern story or an old story yep. I located it immediately in Victorian times. I don't know. What was your response to that, Stan? Yeah, it was a bit Dracula, um, Whitby, the sea at Whitby. That was what was going, that was the image I had mm -hmm. in, in my mind. Uh, yeah. Well, for, for me, ultimately, that story came to life sitting on a bench on Blackpool Promenade looking out to sea um, and, and, and wondering what was out there. And if something had been captured, how then could it escape? So that's how the story seed, as I call it, starts. Right. So once you've got that seed, then you start to think and daydream and plot and, and the seed grows into a story. Um, and, and I didn't want to go down the lines of, of a creature that ended up, you know, causing havoc and, 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 and harming people. I almost turned it on its head and, and the creature in the story is a creature that helps. So it turns up at a little seaside town and it helps the people. 
but it's actually quite misunderstood that they're frightened and they end up chasing this creature away. And um, so there's there's a, almost a, a, a message there of don't judge a book by its cover, don't jump to conclusions. So that's a story that I use quite a lot in schools, and um, that children will pick apart the creature in my story, then recreate their own, and we come up with eyewitness accounts, and, and they pick out the missing segments of the story, what what actually happened in that part, how does the creature help? Um, and I know one school in Blackpool actually use that piece of writing as a theme. Uh, for writing uh, various pieces of writing about it. So it's fantastic that it's generated so much interest and, and got children using their imaginations. So that's something you get do you get a number of schools, children, even adults who are perhaps wanting to turn themselves into children's authors. Do they write directly to you? Yeah, I hear from quite a lot of people, actually. And, and I, I always, always on school visits end up with children who tell me that they want to be authors, which is fantastic. And they say, Dan, can you please give me some advice to be an author? I said, I said, I'm going to give you three pieces of advice. So my first piece of advice is you need to read lots of books. And I can see them nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second piece of advice is read some more books. OK, well, what's the third piece? The third piece? read even more books so the readers become writers and i tell children that in every school i go to you know and i can almost go around classes and and say to children you read books i know you read you can just feel the way they write the way they talk they are just readers readers become writers so any children listening to this now and if your teacher has said to you you know you need to read you need to do some reading they are telling you that because they know that it will help you with your writing definitely I was thinking um, there are some uh, uh, pupils who actually prefer um, non-fiction uh, to fiction, you know, and actually that, that's an element of reading. But actually, do you think that, that, that not, not focusing on fiction actually sort of makes it more difficult for you to write creatively because you're focusing more on the non-fiction side of it? Um, I, I'll be honest with you. Looking back, putting my, putting my teacher hat back on now back in the days as a teacher the guinness book of records was probably one of the most borrowed books in my class uh, and 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 the you know the factual books because i think those little bite-sized pieces of information were often fantastic that, that children would would use the illustrations the pictures to sort of back up what they were seeing now for me i, I tell children reading is reading it doesn't matter whether it's a newspaper <clears throat> whether it's a comic whether it's a graphic novel uh, non-fiction fiction it does not matter you are a reader whatever you're reading and, and I think, you know, looking back at, again, putting the teacher hat back on, the, the way that we write, often in, you know, non-chronological reports and stuff like that, we use non-fiction text. So non-fiction texts definitely have a big place, uh, you know, for writing, um, whether, it, whether it be in class or for me, you know, sort of for pleasure, yeah, definitely. I think you've got to get that understanding that you read for the, all those different purposes. I'm just thinking, looking behind me now, there's a whole range of books that I read for information on leadership. But above that, at the top there, there's a whole range of books on music in Manchester that I read a bit for information, but also for pleasure. And then all the books that I read entirely for pleasure, the, the detective novels and, and crime things are all on another shelf in another room. Uh, so I read all those all the time. I still I still read a lot. But I understand in my own head why I'm reading things and why I pick things up and why I need to read some and others I choose to read. And, of course, because we've got technology now, most of my current books are on my Kindle. Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, what's your view about that, Dan? Have you got a, do you, are you like Stan? You know, it, it doesn't matter where the source of it is. It could be a, a digital device or it could be a hardback or a paperback of your book. It doesn't really matter in your mind. Uh, if I'm honest, I, I, I am old school. I'm, I'm yeah. a paperback, paperback reader, paperback writer. For sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm don't really, I haven't really gone for the, the Kindle or e-readers, no. Um, but then, it, to be honest with you, if it's something that engages children and gets them into reading, I don't think it matters whether it is an, an e-reader or whether it's an actual you know, physical copy of the book. Um, for me, as long as they're reading, it does not matter. No. But then I've got to say it. At 46 years of age, you know, I've, got, I've just got my first pair of reading glasses. So, you know, <laughs> screen, screen or book, you know, I think it's wrong, it's wrong now. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm definitely feeling my age. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I was definitely a book person, but <clears throat> when it got to going on holidays and restrictions on, on what you could carry in your case, what I was finding, there was more weight in books than there was clothes. Yeah. So the Kindle solves that problem straight mm. away. Plus, it's easy to read on on uh, journeys it, so but i wanted to say you know books have been important to me and i found this well i didn't find, i knew where it was this is a book my i think this must be my first book and it's presented from from the sunday school and it was in uh 1960 i don't know if you can see that yeah. wow so, so that book was when i was four years old and I, i've i've kept that with others that uh, that means so much to me as the first books that I. So go on, son, you've got a couple there, haven't you? Do you want to just? Yeah, I've got um, I've got some older than that that are uh, Robinson Crusoe, which was my dad's book, presented in 1938, and I've got uh, a book that my mother was given on her 17th birthday. So uh, that will be again in the early 40s. And these these get passed on. These are books that you can't you can't do anything with but save. And I have to say, our problem is in the house is we've got so many books <laughs> we, we we can't we can't find room for them all. And then I was thinking of books that have have made a big difference are the ones that I've read most. That's I know it's a very famous book, but that's probably the book that I've read at least three times. Mm-hmm. Um, in my life, uh, having laughed at people when I was at, when I was twelve, thirteen, really laughed at people that read books about elves and gnomes and things like that. And, but once you've got into that, and then the other book that I've put to one side is one I really loved reading to children when I was a teacher, which is um, Bill Norton. It's a book of small stories. This one. But the the story that I used to love more than any was Spit Nolan, yeah. And then just picking up um, Dan's thing about about leading people in. My favourite book to read long term in a class at the end of each day was The Weird Stone of Brazingerman by Alan Garner, because it's written in a way that you can guarantee that as you get to the end of each chapter. You can you got everybody waiting for the next bit, and you can say, right, well, it's half past three now, so we'll, <laughs> we won't get to that next bit now until tomorrow or the day after. So yeah, books are really, really part of my life and always have been. And I, my problem is I can't give them away or throw them away. We just build up a store, so that's why Kindles come to my rescue. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I, I'm I'm interested, uh, Dan, in um, your first three or well, first set of books were about Eric Appleby, weren't they? They were yeah. about and and obviously he was this little superhero. Um, I mean, what happens when you you did the trilogy, and then did you move on then to these impossible tales, or did an impossible tale come in before the end of that? And my issue here is around how do you break free from the Eric Appleby? You know, and the impossible <laughs> tales. You know, is, you know that must be because there are people out there probably say, "Oh, give us a bit more of that," but that might not be what you want to do. You know, that those ideas might not be fermenting in your brain at the moment. Yeah, and and just just before just before I talk about that, I will say, um, and and Stan has everything he was saying about his his bookshelves filling and filling and filling there totally resonated there and. And actually something that I've, I've, I've tried over the last year or so is to use my local libraries more. And mm. the stocks that they have, amazing, amazing source of books. Um, plus, I think we've got to love our libraries, keep our libraries going, yeah. support our libraries. Uh, and, and, you know, so, yeah, definitely libraries. And I'm telling children now, get signed up. I, I did uh, library gigs in Wigan. Uh, last week and the week before and and telling children get library cards get signed up you know we need libraries do support libraries um i'll just now, to say my, my daughter was a librarian for right. a number of years um Big and she's up. got um a master's degree in in children's literature so whatever my wife and i did about books certainly was caught on by my daughter who for the last five or six years has threatened to write a book but she's got all these ideas and most of it's in written in chunks but i'm afraid she's now getting married and things are very different <laughs> priorities have suddenly changed mm-hmm. but yeah um i think that's it's it's a love of books that you can pass on and as i say i've actually said to people now stop buying me books because <laughs> <laughs> I can't pose them anyway. Can I just say that's probably not the message we're trying to get across on work. <laughs> so, sign you up for a library stand. That's what we need to do. Yeah. Sign you up for a library stand. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, but but to go back to the question you asked about being being locked into into a trilogy or or a series of books, mm. yeah, I feel at times that I'm I'm riding a runaway train. That the that the audience do want more impossible tales. They want more short stories, um, and and the, they want more Eric. I mean, we I, I sat down with the illustrator and we tried to bring this this series to a conclusion in the trilogy, and and I do feel it. It almost has been brought to a conclusion. But of course, now the one thing that children are used to, it's it's a spin-off. They want a spin-off. Right. So right. even though we finished the trilogy and that story as as it was standing has come to a close, they're now suggesting ideas after reading the books that we could use to make other oh, stories. Wow. Um, so a letter or a, a, an email that somebody sends you, you know, may just be an innocuous have you, you know, have you ever thought of could actually be the origins of the next trilogy? Yeah. And and I do try to listen to the audience because the one thing that children told me years ago, you know, Dan, you need to write a unicorn story, write a story about unicorns. And and I'm, I sort of, you know, this idea, it fermented and I thought, what can I do? I don't want to go down with the stereotypical unicorn and, you know, magic twinkles. So we ended up creating for The Last Impossible Tales a story about a little Shetland pony called Dave, uh, who actually, he is... He is a unicorn, but no one realizes it. Um, and and he has a little lump on his head. Uh, and 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 when he actually he, when he jumps, his tail comes up 
and he does uh, a trump that fires out stardust twinkles and things <laughs> like that. So, uh, so yeah, so that, so I did put the unicorn story in there. So that's sort of like that, that's that's quelled one sort of you know uh, demand. But uh, but yeah, Eric spin-offs. That's that's the demand at the moment. Whether we'll do it, I don't know. I haven't got anything fresh in my mind that we could go off on another series and start something else. But the impossible tales just go on and on. Maybe scare, scary is the vibe I get at the moment. Scary, uh, middle grade readers. So your your seven to eleven, seven to twelves, they, they seem to be liking the scary stories. I think on the maybe on the back of Stranger Things and stuff like that at the moment. So yeah, possibly something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, can you can you give us some idea of the, the you know I mean you must be asked this all the time you know your life as a as an author, I mean is it very clearly disciplined in that you sort of in effect <laughs> to this room where you are now which might be a study or a bedroom or somewhere in your house, and actually discipline yourself to to do the writing during a certain period of time or are you much freer and just you know when it when the mood takes you. Um, it's interesting because when I, I was out walking the dog the other day, and, and, and I do ponder when I walk the dog, it's a bit of head clarity, and, and 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 I did think to myself how different life is now compared to teacher life, because teacher life was very structured, very organised, everything was were fitted in, um, whereas now. I, it seems to fluctuate. So I'll have days when it's 100 miles an hour and I'm so busy and I'll have other days when it calms down and I can sit to write. But one thing that I do tell the children that I, I am in no way, I'm not someone who has a, a writing shed. I don't have a special building at the bottom of my garden. I live in, in a relatively small house and I'll often just sit in, in the lounge downstairs with the laptop on my knee and, and I'll write that way. Some days I can write in a burst of seven, eight hours. Some days I might get an hour in there. But I can go for weeks without writing anything. If there's nothing in there and there's no stories that I think I want to get down, I'll just jot. I'll jot in my, in my notebook, which I brought here. One oh, of my friends right, brought this years that. ago. That's so this, this, this is my book of weird observations, which is quite fitting, actually, for some of the things that go in this book. Uh, and a mate of mine bought me this. So he said, there you go. Put all your stories ideas as ideas in there. So, yeah, it's very, very sporadic, I think, if we're using a word. that I, I But then some days I'm out on visits. I, I can The next four or five weeks, I'm literally out most days working in school. So I don't have the time to write. Um, but then I'll have quiet time over the summer when possibly I'll settle and, and get into something. So, Dan, when, when, you've, when you've sort of drafted your, your first piece and you think, right, that, I've got the story now and I've written most of it, how many revisions does that take when it comes <laughs> to publishers, et cetera, before it goes out? Right, okay. So it all starts off once 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 you've got the idea of, for the story, and I say to the children, and this is this is really important, the first draft is never the best draft. And you've got to remember that. The first draft is what I like to call the brain emptier. It's the one that gets all these these ideas and these tangled, knotted sentences and thoughts onto a page. And that's why it's hard to start it, because with a blank piece of paper, it's really difficult. But it, you've just got to go for it. And you've got to accept that there will be some bits in there that are, that are good, some bits that are all right, and some bits that are terrible that you are going to get rid of. So the editing process, I, I think if you liken it to real life, if you think in your garden, if you've got a hedge that's totally overgrown and wild, 
That's the first draft. And if you get the clippers out and start to shape it and trim bits there and you make and you start to craft it. And that's what the editing process is. So for me, the first draft turns into a second and, 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 and I look at the whole story. So you start with the whole thing. So you look at the content and then you focus in. So you then go in and look at your maybe your paragraphs into your sentences and your openers and you focus then right down in, in, into the sentence structure. So I would say usually I'll do five or six drafts yeah. before, you know, we're looking to be ready to put it out. But there are always readers who will read the story in the early stages who I want to be brutal. They need to tell me that bits are rubbish, that bits mm -hmm. don't make sense. And some people are so lovely that they tell me it's the best thing they've ever read. I know that. I know that's not true. So I need honest critics. Yeah. Um, so any children who are listening to this, you must always realise when your teacher says to you, yeah. "Go and have another look at it." As I say in schools, and all the children look at the teacher. We all know that they're telling you because they know that what you've got is not your best piece of writing. First draft is never best draft. I think Stan, what was going through my mind as Stan was talking there was. We had a brutal experience in 1995-96. I won't tell you what it was and how that person was brutal to us, but it was a kind brutalness. It was, if that's a if that's a term, that the person was really toughening up our writing, making it much clearer, much sharper, and I think generally stand much shorter. Getting to yeah, the, I've got a, a, a an appraisal that says uh, Stan's writing is getting better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we... <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's uh, for me I, I think that um, when I think about the work I do now um, I do a lot of reading and it and, and I have to find time for the sort of uh, my reading I do a lot of reading related to work and uh, I have quite a bit of stuff published and I'm, I'm very keen on social media so that involves some form of writing um, but the book I'm reading at the moment is by uh, a woman called Kerry Hudson, and it's called Lowborn. And uh, Kerry Hudson um, uh, is an author who had a very, very challenging upbringing. And so um, her mother and her sister uh, must have gone to, I don't know, countless towns where they would live in B&Bs. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that Kerry could actually get to a position where she could be an author. Bearing in mind, I don't know how many schools she went to. But she speaks very highly of teachers who um, read to her, encouraged her, um, because they had no books in their house. They, you know, when they'd move from one flat to another flat, the, the last thing they were thinking was, oh, we've got to grab all the books. You know, there, there, there weren't any. So the point she makes about the local library and the, the power of the teacher bringing new books, new experiences through um, reading aloud to Kerry was was a fundamental part of her understanding how she could draw on her experience and and some of them were awful but all of those all some of those good and not so good experiences were going into that brain of hers and uh, Lowborn is about her revisiting some of the towns that she visited uh, she stayed in and seeing them now as they were and remind, remembering what they were like when she was there um, and what they're like now um, and in some cases they're massively different and in other cases they are <laughs> just really quite depressing you know so it's all of those ex all those life experiences have come to Kerry and uh, and she's a successful author now so uh, it also makes me wonder 
my brother was a um an avid reader and i wasn't uh and his bedroom was full of books but i can honestly say we only had three books in the house and that was the new testament the old testament and a prayer book and these were leather bound which my mother was very proud of and actually when i think about you know it must have been the library it must have been the impact of my brother it must have been the school that enabled me to find my way in being able to read and to write and to do all of this you know it wasn't something that was given to us you know so those difficult upbringings and not having a lot um i think you know really hit a chord with me with this lowborn book um, that's probably frank why why i've still got some some books from my very early childhood because again we weren't a well-off family at all and so a book was was almost a precious gift that you you looked after and read and reread and reread, but I do think I have to say about a teacher when I when I was at grammar school, who shifted me from reading the sort of Enie Blyton style books which I'd grown up on, to reading something that that was much better crafted, much better written, and and it was an English teacher who used to one lesson a week used to hand out from a box of books. You had to choose the book that you wanted and, and stick with it for weeks. And I read 2001. I would never have read that yeah. had it not been the only book in the box that I thought I, I, I might be interested in and the discipline of, well, you will read it for the next 40 minutes for the next half term. Uh, and I read it and I read it and I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And that shifted my reading to more serious fiction and non-fiction from no childlike books and i i don't know to this day whether it was just an easy way to teach <laughs> you just give the books out or whether it was inspirational but it worked either it way effective. yeah did the job but uh, going going back to one thing that you mentioned there about the author that you referenced there frank i i, I think writing is an escape uh, and i say that to the children you know and, and particularly with reference to to covid when covid struck and and my work disappeared within a day everything just went all the school visits were just just deleted um and and, and i sat down and thought right i'm going to get lost i've got the stories i'm going to go for it and and literally just started to write and created even more impossible tales and and i think the vibe of some of those stories and maybe a little bit darker, some of them, because of the, the, the mood and what was going on. So, so yeah, I, I do think it is a total escape. And, and it doesn't matter where you are in your life, because you can get lost in something that is totally different to what is going on in real life. So, yeah, writing and reading, a total escape. Yeah, so I, I can see where you, you, the author you reference definitely has gone down that route and, and used and you know as, as an escape route. Definitely brilliant. Brilliant. So... Believe it or not, that's about thirty minutes. Uh, I just want to ask Dan though, what when you were growing up, when you were at primary school, what were the books that that switched you on? Uh, the Twits always springs to mind. I can remember reading that. I can remember the Land of Witch in the Wardrobe. Mum did that as a as a bedtime read, and I couldn't wait to get to bed fast enough. Uh, you know, when she used to walk, she was just knew where to leave it. As we said at the start yeah. of the chat, she knew where to leave it. The good bits, and and also, and and, and if we've got any teachers who are watching this, they might remember this. Teachers of a certain age, should I say? Um, the choose your own adventure books. So yeah, you would start off reading yeah. page one. And then you would get a choice of where to go. 
and, and yeah. you would then go off to page 47 and make decisions and, and it almost felt like you were you were the, the creator of the story which was really quite powerful as a child so so yeah those three books i think definitely stuck in my mind and the beano i used to sit yeah. by the front door on, on beano delivery day uh love the beano absolutely well um, I hope everybody who's watching or listening uh, has enjoyed our 30 odd minute chat uh, with Dan Worsley. Dan, if, uh, as you say, you do school visits, uh, you have a website. Do you want to give it a shout? Because I can't. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's that danworsley.com and all the details are on there. Uh, email addresses on there as well for contact. And um, so, yeah, World, World Book Day coming up. I think I've got three trips to the Fowl Coast, Blackpool, Thornton. Um, and then I've got a day in Stoke on Trent and I've got a day in Stockport. Right. So, uh, yeah, so it's uh, quite how there far, and everywhere. How far will you go, Dan, for these visits? <laughs> well, I did uh, three days in Worcestershire um, uh, in January. So uh, an Academy Trust um some of the schools grouped together. So we did two days in, in one school, uh, a middle school uh, and, and then uh, half a day in, in a couple of other schools. So, yeah, it, it, you know, if, if we can hatch a plan, I, I, I never say no. I'm always I'm always <laughs> open, I'm always open to suggestions. And, and just um, before we finish, Dan, what, uh, you've got those. Uh, the three, the trilogy is complete or might not be. What do you, you know, The Impossible Tales, is there another book coming along those Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And, and and probably the scary sort of, but the scary is so hard to do because, yeah. you you know, you, you can, what, what for one child can be terrifying, another child can just yeah. laugh it off. So I, I, many years ago, experimented with this and created a story about a pair of false teeth that, that comes to life in a lightning uh, storm. Uh, so you've got a bit of Frankenstein in there uh, and hunt down a grandma and, and the little boy in a farmhouse. It's all set in the dark. And to me, it was more comedic. Yeah, imagining a pair of false teeth click clacking the way around the house. And I did have some parents who contacted me to tell me that the children <laughs> had had nightmares about these oh. false teeth. So you can't win. You can't no, win. No. no, you definitely can't win with that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Dan, uh, for joining thank us. You. Very special. Uh, the first time we've done uh, Frankenstein chat like this. So, uh, uh, thank you for you know for doing it. And and I hope please feedback if you're a teacher or a child who's listened to Dan this morning and and Frankenstein just wittering on about their reading experiences. You know, um, please you know let us know what you think and uh, whether or not we ought to do something similar going forward. But uh, thank you, everybody, and uh, enjoy World Book Day when it comes. And uh, Dan, we'll have you back again this time next year, I think. Okay. Take care, everyone. Same place, same time. See you yeah, later. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye.